Hi everyone, this is Michael Cox for the InCommon podcast. For this episode, I'm joined by a new co-host on the show, Divya Gupta. Divya and I interviewed a friend and colleague of both of ours, Forrest Fleischmann, who is currently a professor in the Department of Forest Resources at the University of Minnesota. Forrest is mostly a qualitative social scientist who collaborates with others to take a mixed method approach to studying forest management and governance. So before we get started, Divya, could you introduce yourself? And then since interviewing Forrest for our first joint interview was your idea, could you talk about why you wanted to talk to him first? He's been someone I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. Hi, thanks, Michael. Hi, everyone. I'm a senior research fellow in the Institute of Public Policy at the Indian School of Business in Hyderabad, India. I've been extensively involved in the research on natural resource governance for almost a decade. Um, my, my research interests are broad, and uh, some of them include multi-actor role in governance and decision-making, institutional design and analysis, collective action, and I'm also um, interested in the discourses on climate change mitigation and sustainable development. Most recently, I've been involved in a research project where we are looking at the impact of the pandemic on local governance and food and livelihood security in the mid-Himalayan region of India and Nepal. I have been an avid listener of the InCommon podcast and, uh, and always felt it was great to hear scholars talk about their research and their journeys. I found, I've always found the podcast to be a unique way to connect with the scholars or guests on a personal level. So I'm really grateful to be part of the team and I'm excited to host Forrest as our first guest. Um, I've known Forrest for many years now and his scholarship on forest bureaucracy in India has always inspired my work in great ways. I'm glad he agreed to be our guest on the show and I look forward to our conversation. Great, thanks Divya. So for listeners to know, for this interview, I will be taking the lead with Divya's help. And then in the future, Divya will be leading her own interviews with other guests. All right, so Forrest, I am excited to, I mean, there are different types of interviews I feel like we do on the podcast. And one of the kinds is with folks that we know. And for me, there's always a particular excitement there in that you get to kind of get to know someone that you feel like you've known for a while better because you get to ask like explicit questions and then they have to answer them thoughtfully. So, um, you saw the questions that, that Divya had uh, written up. And for me, a lot of those boil down to a question about what I now call your origin story. Mm-hmm. You know, the way Superman and Spider-Man and different mm-hmm. superheroes. So, you know, what's your version of getting bitten by a spider? How did you um, decide to follow the career that you've now taken? What led you to want to say, start a PhD program at Indiana University where I met you and focus on environmental policy? What were the formative steps that occurred to you? Well, I think there's a few. Um, I think the first one, uh, you know, I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts, down the road from you, not, not too far from you, a couple hours from you. And um, Amherst is a, is a college town, it's pretty small. And we lived not in the town, but just a few miles out of town. Uh, on a road that if you drove down the road, you'd think, oh, this looks kind of suburban, but there was no next road. So my backyard went for, I don't know, a few miles 
there's a huge swamp, which is actually part of the town's water supply. And in the, in the, um, in the summer, it's kind of impenetrable and uh, full of mosquitoes. But in the winter, particularly if it freezes over, you can just sort of wander around. And so uh, there were apple orchards and, and farm fields behind my house. Um, so uh, my parents also had a had bought actually before I was born and before they bought that house, they bought a little piece of land um, in southern Vermont in an area that at that time no one wanted land. So it was very cheap and built a little tiny little cabin that doesn't have electricity or running water or plumbing. Um, and we spent a lot of time up there sort of it's sort of like established camping almost like there's a there's a building there, but nothing else you're basically camping so I grew up um, just doing a lot of outdoor stuff all the time of course I went to outdoor summer camps and outdoor school programs and stuff like that but by the time I got to them it was kind of that was already who I was and, and um, I went to an elementary school where uh, we in sixth grade when we graduated they would they would did an exercise where all the other students would write something about who you were and what they appreciated about you. And that was kind of your, your diploma from the school. Several years ago, I found this and it, it basically says, uh, Forrest is going to be a researcher about the environment. Wow. Um, so like by the time I was 12, my, my peers already sort of had a sense of, of me being who I am now. Um, but I, I think at that point, they probably said that I was going to study birds because I was pretty into bird watching at that point um, and, and definitely into ecology and um, sort of environmental science. And I would say I wasn't aware of environmental social science as a field. And um, if I had been, I'm not sure I would, that, would have been that interested. Like to me, animals and nature were, were what was interesting. I mean, that's particularly interesting given what we're going to talk about in like 20 minutes. Yeah. Your current so, so perspective on. I yeah. had, a, had a, a series of conversion experiences in college. I went to Stanford um, and really I was attracted to Stanford because it had a, I, I, I knew, I knew about several of the famous faculty there in ecology and environmental science. Um, and it really had a phenomenal faculty in those areas. Um, you know, if, if you look at, the list of the National Academy members in environmental uh, science, you know, there's five or six of them who, you know, I either worked as a research assistant for or took several classes with or had another close relationship uh, with as an undergraduate. So it was an amazing experience. Um, and the really the, the first really formative experience in turn of, terms of turning me into a social scientist was I got this amazing opportunity my first summer in college to go spend a summer in Costa Rica working as a research assistant for a graduate student who was studying bird conservation. And again, because I'd been a birder since I was fairly little, you know, it was competitive to get these fellowships, but I was like the one person who applied to it who was like, I am a serious bird watcher as opposed to other people who are like, I'm an undergraduate studying ecology. I was like, uh, yeah, I can walk in there and use binoculars and identify birds tomorrow. And so I imagine that's why I got that position. And I got to go spend a summer in a research station in Costa Rica, which was a pretty amazing experience for an 18 year old. 
And I got really frustrated because I was there and like, we're studying bird conservation and we're going out there and we're like studying how basically the research question was, why do some birds survive in forest fragments and some not survive in forest fragments? And I was like, and there's logging trucks driving by all day. And there's, you know, we're walking through these pastures of these private landowners who are literally are the people who clear the forest because that area had only been settled about 30 or 40 years ago. Um, and so the forest clearing was, was recent. The older people who you'd meet were the people who had cleared the forest. And I was like, shouldn't we be studying how to do something about all the forest clearing instead of just studying like, why are the birds suffering because of it? And so that was, for me, that was a learning experience, not to criticize that research. It was very valuable research. Um, but it was, I realized that the, the, the motivations I had to study the environment were really to help. And the ecology that I found fascinating and still find fascinating wasn't going to solve this problem. All it was gonna do is tell us what was gonna happen down the road. Yeah, all of certain species of birds are gonna disappear from this part of Costa Rica if we keep clearing. Well, who cares? You know, it, it doesn't matter if they disappear if we can't do anything to stop it. You know, maybe it's interesting intellectually to know that those birds are disappearing. So, so I came back from that experience, I would say, with a shift in focus in my mind. And I got involved in some student advocacy groups because I thought, well, maybe being, a, being an activist is a way to address this. And I, I started taking more classes. And um, I would say, uh, really, it might've been a couple of years later, I took, to, I took a directed readings class um, with another undergraduate and a postdoc who's actually was my colleague for several years at Texas A&M, but she was a postdoc at Stanford um, at that time. And I can't remember who, but one of them said, you know, Forrest, you should really read this book, Governing the Commons by Eleanor Ostrom. And I remember taking it and going back to my dorm room and reading it and just being like, oh my God, like this is the answer to all my questions. Not that it literally had the answers to all my questions, but it was like, here's someone studying exactly what I've been trying to understand. And no, you know, it was a postdoc. None of the classes I was taking at Stanford were telling me those things. Um, they were telling me what the environmental problems were. I learned some environmental economics, but I wasn't learning about, you know, the social and political dynamics of, of solving a problem. And of course, that's what governing the commons is about. So that's how I ended up at Indiana. Um, okay, so you read, you read governing the commons as an undergraduate. Yeah. What did you think of it? I, I was just blown away. I was like trying to get everyone else to read it and everyone else was like, oh, Forrest, this is a boring book. The other thing that was interesting about it is I was living in a co-op house at that time, like a really big student co-op house. And so we were, as, as a resident of the co-op house, we were constantly struggling with like, how do you work together how, to solve problems? How do you make sure that everyone does their dishes? Um, and so, the governing the commons, it, it wasn't like, there was obviously this connection to my concerns with environmental conservation, but there was also this sort of really direct connection to my daily life of struggling with dealing with collective action problems that you deal with when you live with a dozen or two dozen other 
people your age and are trying to figure out how to get meals cooked and dishes cleaned and the bathrooms cleaned and um, people from not hurting each other when they get frustrated with each other. And uh, so, so, so I, I, I was kind of blown away with it. And, and honestly, you know, I, for several years after that, I had this like sinking feeling because to me, like I grew up in Massachusetts, I went to college in California and Indiana kind of sounded like a horrible place. It's like flyover country, no one would ever, why would anyone want to go to Indiana? And I just had this sinking feeling like, but I think I'm going to have to go there. Because, like, <laughs> this is just intellectually what I'm fascinated by. But, and I remember even moving, I, I drove with my parents from Massachusetts to Indiana and driving through like Northern, Northern Ohio and Northern Indiana and just being like, this place is really flat and kind of ugly. Well, when you're taking Route 70 West, you're basically seeing corn and soy fields that are yeah. completely flat with no topography or... Yeah, and I was just like, oh man, this sucks, but I'm gonna have to do this. And then I, it turned out that Bloomington was like a beautiful and wonderful place to live. And, and um, I had a great time there. So my fears were unfounded. And Lynn, one of her many wisdoms was in choosing to stay in, in a beautiful place when probably she could have moved someplace else more prestigious, but. And what year was that that you moved to Indiana Forest, to Bloomington? 2007. 2007, okay. Yeah, to work with Lynn Ostrom, and which is where we met. Yeah. So I, um, I had a similar experience in some ways to you, Forest. I, I mean, I love Bloomington. I love Southern Indiana. It's got these rolling green hills. My understanding is that it's the glaciers essentially didn't get that far to flatten that area. So it's much more topographical. I mean, the, the Kentuckiana area, the Ohio River Valley, I think is just like lovely. And so my, my, the next question I have for you for us, which is really important, because if you disagree with me on this, I don't know if we can continue the conversation. What, 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 what's the best pizza in Bloomington, Indiana? Well, Mike, I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and uh, the big thing in Amherst, Massachusetts was Antonio's Pizza. Perhaps you have been there if you've been to Amherst. It's like a, now like a landmark, and it, it's. I like it's, it that the way that you ask the question implies that I should have been there if I haven't. Yes, you should have been there, um, and it's now become like a, a minor chain, and it has a branches in a few other college towns, um, but. Uh, I never had a good pizza in, in Bloomington, but I, I wasn't like, I wasn't gonna bother trying cause it was kind of hopeless. Oh, Forrest, you're breaking my heart. <laughs> All right. So for listeners to know the correct answer was Mother Bear's pizza, which is arguably the best pizza in the world. It's one of my happiest memories uh, of Bloomington. Indiana. So Forrest, you, were, you got to Bloomington in 2007. Yeah. You were there for five years. Okay. Yeah. Um, can you talk to us about what you focused on in your dissertation? Because I know that's, you know, you went to India and it's, you know, focused on some work there. And my understanding is that that has led you to a lot of your current research. So yeah. I'd love to hear about what you focused on for your dissertation as your next step. Well, I'll just say to start with that it's been interesting to me as, as my research career has developed. I feel like every research project that I do has roots in something I did like at least 10 years previously. Um, and so sometimes uh, 
I had a conversation with a colleague here at Minnesota when I first arrived here about like all the amazing opportunities to do research in Minnesota. And I was kind of like, I'm not really sure because in my experience, it takes a really long time to really frame a good research question and to really figure out um, what's interesting about a place and a problem. And so I think basically all the research I do now is based on stuff I did at least a decade ago and spent a long time thinking about before I could frame a good research question. And now that I'm you know, a faculty member, I've actually gotten grants and, and made big projects out of some of these questions. But uh, I was, I was interested, I'd, I'd lived in India for a year before I um, started my doctoral work. And I was, I was interested in the phenomena of joint forest management, which to give some context, in India, forests are, are owned by the government by and large. Formally. Formally. Um, but they're often forests sort of they're not remote forest areas way out in the wilderness. There's villages scattered through the forest areas and farm fields. And so a typical forest patch might be, you know, a 10 to a half an hour, 10 minute to half an hour walk from a village with a thousand people living in it. And maybe the village is, is you know, a thousand people and the forest might be 100 hectares or 500 hectares or even a thousand hectares, but there it's all intermingled. So. Um, there's historically been a huge amount of conflict between the government that owns these forests and sort of it says we're managing these forests for some centrally planned purpose. And these local villages that are using these forests and are the people who actually live near and interact with the forests all the time. So really beginning more or less in the 1980s, there was a big movement in India called joint forest management, which is what it sounds like. The government and the village work together. And coming from Indiana, it was sort of interesting, like, well, let's look at collective action between government and villagers. But I realized pretty quickly, I didn't, at that time, I didn't speak any Indian language. Um, I did study Hindi before I started my field work, but India is so linguistically diverse, I ended up working in, a, in, in areas where Hindi wasn't the predominant language in the villages. Um, so I figured out pretty quickly that um, I was never really going to be able to do a good village-based study. In any case, there seemed to be a lot of them already, and there didn't seem to be very much. There was a lot of stuff in the literature about joint forest management that basically said joint forest management doesn't work because of the forest department. But I couldn't really find anyone who'd studied the forest department. And because of the legacy of, of British colonial rule, a lot of government agencies in India operate in English, including the forest departments I studied. Um, I think in one state, some of their documents were in, a, were in Marathi, were in a local language, but um, the sort of everyday language of administration was English. So I said, well, I can actually go and study uh, these bureaucrats and I don't have this big language barrier. Um, and, and no one's done this. Um, I mean, I, I later found there were one or two people whose work I found who had done a little bit of this, but to this day, I would say there's really not very much study in the Indian context of how the government agencies work. 
not just forestry, but in general, I would say in India, there's not a lot of study of how the government works. There's a lot more study about its impact on, on people, but not as much about how and why it works. So I went to do this. And one of the challenges of doing this was since there wasn't a lot of people who'd done it before, I couldn't really figure out like what my theory was. So I ended up doing a really kind of, I would say inductive ethnographic um, study where I just sort of said, well, I'm gonna follow these people around and, and see what they do all day and ask them why they do it. And that's, that's what I did. That was my dissertation. Um, and so again, I went in interested in this joint thing. And what, so everywhere I went, I'd ask people, um, can you show me your joint forest management? And without fail, every single time I asked that of a, of a government official, they'd take me to a tree plantation. There'd be no people. They'd be like, here's our joint forest management plantation. So I was like, this is kind of weird. I thought joint forest management was about the government working with local people, but the government people seem to think it's about having tree plantations. And I started looking into budgets and sure enough, like uh, I found the budget of this World Bank, very high profile World Bank project um, that was supposed to be, it, it wasn't joint forest management, it was community forest management because it went beyond what joint forest management was. And I that looked sounds, at the budget. Okay. I looked at the budget, well, that's what they said. I looked at the budget and 60% of the budget was for planting trees. So- What was the other 40, do you remember? Was it- Administrative costs, training. They do this thing in joint forest management, they do this thing called entry point activities, which I don't know, it, it makes sense and it also seems kind of silly. So basically the idea is we don't really think that these people care about the forest. So to get them to care about the forest, we're gonna give them something that they value and say it's joint forest management as part of joint forest management. So an example might be, uh, we're going to build a community gathering hall in the village. And the Joint Forest Management Committee is going to own and manage that community gathering hall. It has nothing to do with the forest, but the forest department paid for it. So it gets these people interested in this activity. And their, their sort of their charge is okay, now you have to do this plantation. Okay. I mean, the community gathering hall at least sounds socially oriented. Yeah, it's useful. Yeah. And and to the extent that um, there was another place I went where they'd like, they bought a whole bunch of chairs and tables and they'd given them to the Joint Forest Management Committee. And then whenever someone had a, you know, a wedding or a, some kind of party, they could rent chairs and tables from the Joint Forest Management Committee. And the Joint Forest Management could charge a small amount of money and then they'd have an income while they waited for their trees to grow, eventually they were gonna get an income from selling trees, but the trees weren't gonna be available to sell quickly. So anyway, um, I got really interested in why are they planting so many trees? So that was actually, I think that was the first paper that I published out of my dissertation, um, which is called, Why Do Foresters Plant Trees? 
And, um, and, you know, it was one of these things I didn't set out looking for it. I was confused by it. And I remember um, sitting in my, what was then my girlfriend, now my wife's apartment. And I had actually finished first drafts of the other chapters of my dissertation. I was trying to figure out what to write next. And I hadn't even thought about writing about this, but it had really bothered me the whole time I'd been working on this. And I said, you know what? I'm just gonna sit down and write down what I think about this. And I just sort of sat there and typed it all out and sent it to my committee. And then one of my committee members, Bernie Fisher was like, I think this is, this is the best thing you've written. I was like, what? Like, this wasn't even part of my dissertation plan. This is just something I found. He's like, no, you, you're onto something. So that's what I've been working on that ever since that sort of. That's a seminal, that's a seminal paper Forrest. And uh, I mean, I've read it a couple of times now and every time I read it, I always think about that, how it would have been for you to really sort of like, you know, wrap your head around all the bureaucratic processes and, you know, um, and how it would have been for you to navigate uh, you know, just the field work and data collection. And I think, you know, as you mentioned at the outset that it was really uh, smart of you to, to decide to not do the village work and instead like, you know, focus on the bureaucrats because um, it's, it's comparatively easier to communicate with them. They knew some Hindi and obviously like, you know, English. So um, that makes interaction with the bureaucrats easier. However, I feel like, you know, the fact that you were working in a completely different context, just the paper that you mentioned, like, you know, why do foresters plant trees? It is a really nuanced paper. And that makes me think about how you managed to bring in that nuance, given that you were still figuring out the field, you were still figuring out, you know, the context, you were, you're still figuring out the history and the, and the politics, and just the workings of the forest department, where was the breakthrough moment and how did it all happen? Well, I, I, I mean, I guess what I'd say is um, between 2006 and 2011, I spent two full years in India. Um, and I, one of the things I figured out pretty quickly is a lot of, a lot of, I'll say this about India, but I think it's true kind of generally about foreigners going to another country. They tend to congregate in certain kinds of places. So I remember when I was first in India, I went to this uh, temple town called Pushkar. And Pushkar was full of Israelis. And I was sitting in this cafe and I was talking to this Israeli guy. He was like, man, this really sucks. I came to India to get away from Israelis. And like this town is just full of Israelis. Like I'm gonna go someplace else. I'm gonna go to Hampi, which is another tourist town. And at that time I, I was traveling with someone who had, I'd never, I've never been to Hampi, but someone who had spent a couple of weeks in Hampi. Beautiful she place. said to me, you know, Hampi is full of Israelis too. Yeah. So I figured out pretty quickly, like if I want to understand India, I have to like, I'm, I, I can't, I can't hang out in Pushkar. Like Pushkar is kind of a, a really neat place, but I need to just go to places where foreigners aren't going and just talk to people and immerse myself in the, in the culture and society. And um, I was fortunate 
Um, I've, I've been incredibly fortunate throughout the time that I've worked in India, and this continues to the present, to have found partly through luck, partly through connections, like connections through Lynn and others, um, just wonderful, amazing people who have taken the time to teach me. Um, and from the first time I arrived in India, I had a couple um, hosts when I lived in Kerala who were faculty at a university there who, you know, there's, there's no way I could repay the debt that, to them that I have. They, they took so much time out of their lives. Um, they helped me find other young people. Um, and I've, I've often hired other young people as research assistants um, and, and been able to see, um, you know, India through the eyes of say a grad, an Indian master student who I can hire to work for me. Um, and uh, I, I've had people who've taken the time to, to welcome me and, and teach me a huge amount. Um, and then, you know, all that time, all those two years, what I was doing all day, every day is trying to understand the world I was in. And it was extremely different. Um, and, and that made it really, like it, it grabbed my attention because I think if I'd studied something in the US, I would have been very passionate about it. But there was something about everything being different that made me just like really focus on, I need to understand every little detail. Okay, why are they saying that? Why are they doing this? Why do people behave like that? And I was constantly asking people probably really dumb questions, you know, uh, but I also think there's something, uh, you know, one of the things they say about ethnography is ethnography is the art of, of making something that's normal seem strange. And to me, it was natural because everything I encountered in India was a little bit strange. So the normal things that people took for granted to me, I needed, to, I needed an explanation. Um, and, and I think that in some ways that, I don't know if it was an advantage because probably if I had, um, if I'd been Indian, there are many ways in which my work would have been better. Um, but there was an advantage there in terms of um, having everything be strange to begin with. And then I think the other thing, uh, which maybe isn't a, I don't know, I, I'm not sure this is a nice thing to say, but Indians have a huge amount of respect for white people who are foreigners. And there's sort of this automatic authority I had everywhere I went that kind of made me uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, I used to, when I was doing my doctoral field work, I used to go into the office, sort of unannounced, walk into the offices of important government officials and sort of demand that they talk to me for an hour. And with one exception, uh, maybe two exceptions, everyone did. And I saw Indian graduate students walking into those same offices and being treated incredibly rudely and dismissively. Um, and, you know, I was a white American. They weren't gonna be rude and dismissive to me. And so I, I think that helped and, and gave me some access that, I don't know, Divya, I mean, you've done similar, some similar field work to me and I think you've been fairly successful. So I don't, I'm not gonna say it can't be done, um, but it, I think it gave me some kind of advantage. 
I mean, what you said really resonated with what we as a team are experiencing, even you know, while we are doing remote data collection, just the value of our networks and how we completely rely on the kindness and the generosity of the random strangers. And we just like hope that the, the next person we are calling to you know, ask a few questions, to be nice and you know, be understanding of how um, you know, we're, we're not some like scam caller or calling from like, you know, a bank or random like, you know, call center people. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, remote data collection kind of like, you know, adds that extra layer of uncertainty, especially in terms of like, you know, people who we are calling to, to talk. And um, certainly, you know, our networks and uh, the better the networks are, the more credible the networks are, the, the better, uh, you know, our conversations are. But, you know, what's, what's really interesting for us, like, you know, you talked about the privilege of being this, like, you know, American and how when you go as an American, when you go walk into the office, uh, you, you experienced that, you know, that, that the people were, were, were willing to help you, more willing to help you um, in comparison to, like, you know, your other peers who are probably, like, you know, native uh, Indians, but um, I mean, Indian doesn't. Uh, but then I was wondering that, like, you know, uh, whether that privilege also puts you at, at a disadvantage where, um, you know, these, these officials try to show you like the brighter side of the picture versus like, you know, what's going wrong. And then how do you figure that out? Like, you know, how do you figure out what's missing in the picture? And then how do you go about understanding what these people are not telling you or not showing you? Yeah, I, I think that there were a couple things I did. Um, so I would say maybe maybe there's three things. One is, and I think I say this in some of in some of the papers out of my dissertation that, you know, I know that there's things I didn't see and don't have information about. But so one of one of the and I remember struggling with reviewer comments on this when I wrote that why do foresters plant trees. I think one of the reviewers wanted it to be all about corruption. And I didn't observe corruption. Now, that's one of those things that maybe was hidden from me. I didn't say it doesn't exist, but look, what, what I say in that paper is that there's a lot of other explanations of what's going on. And I think, so to speak specifically about the corruption issue, I think in India, there's been a tendency to sort of use the word corruption as a stand-in for all kinds of, of government malfunctions. But what we tend to actually, and, and in India, this is what people mean, corruption means illegal behavior or at least bad behavior. And what I showed in that paper is there's lots of stuff that's going on. It's totally above the board. It's written in the government programs. It's right there in the policy. Everyone's very upfront about it. And that's one of that's the reasons why people are planting trees. And yeah, corruption is, might play a role. And I I I think I admit in that paper that I I, I don't know. And, and since then I've learned a little bit more about corruption um, in tree planting. I, I think it's I don't think it's absent, but it, I don't think it's the main driver. Um, so that's one thing is just sort of acknowledging the limitations of what what you know. Um, the the second thing is. Um, in my doctoral work, and, and really throughout all the time that I, I've been in India, I've never worked alone. So in my doctoral work, I had two different research assistants work for me over the course of a year, um, both of whom were 
incredibly talented, incredibly intelligent young men, um, a couple of years younger than me at the time, um, at, who were local, you know, at least from that state. And we, I sort of assigned them to observe the things that I didn't observe. So, you know, after we had the interview, we'd go eat lunch and I'd say, tell me, tell me what else was going on, you know, or what, what, what was that conversation in the background in Marathi that I couldn't follow? What was that about? Um, and sometimes I'd actually sort of, I'd go with the, with the high level official and I'd leave my assistant with the low level official and my assistant would make friends with the low level official and sometimes we'd hear different stories. You know, and, and so, so that was really useful. Um, and then the final thing I, I did was I tried to do a lot of triangulation. So everywhere I went, I tried to interact with government officials at multiple levels from multiple departments, people from different NGOs, you know, any kinds of activists I could find. And we usually end up going to a few villages and we talk to people in the villages. So I was always trying to triangulate information. And, you know, sometimes, you know, going back to the corruption issue, I'd have a government official tell me all these nice stories. And then sometimes, you know, his subordinate would tell my research assistant, oh, you know, Sabser is, is super corrupt and here's all the bad things he's doing. Or we'd go to a village and we'd hear or talk to some people in an NGO and we hear some really nasty stories about these people who we were interviewing. And well, now we're kind of building up a picture. Um, so Forrest, I have a question about that then to follow up. You're talking about, and what you're saying reminds me of work I've done in the Dominican Republic where there's a lot of intergroup tensions and you'll hear one thing from a local Dominican, you'll hear another thing from a Dominican, uh, state agent and honestly in those situations I felt like I'm being more of a journalist than a scientist and there's not like any statistical what's a what's it some fancy thing there's no code in R that's gonna like solve this conflict and ambiguity for you so how did you reconcile these sometimes conflicting perspectives I mean you can interpret them I suppose based on the incentive structures of people have like why would this person tend to say this to me right um is that how what was your approach say also when you're writing up a paper in addressing those ambiguities that we all have an incentive to kind of gloss over when we're trying to market a story mm -hmm. in a pdf well i guess the first thing i would say is I don't think that there's a hard and fast line between researcher and journalist. To me, the biggest difference is a journalist, even an in-depth story is something they did for a week or a month. And research is something that you spend years on. So, so to me, you know, People make a big fuss about, well, is it, are we making causal inferences or not? And that's one of the, but to me, the difference is how hard did you study it? And, you know, when you read the book by a journalist who spent two years studying X topic, and you read the book by a scientist who studied two years 
studying that topic, there's not always a clear distinction between them. Um, you know, maybe the scientist is more likely to use data in certain ways um, and be more explicit about how they draw conclusions. But a lot of journalists are doing a lot of data analysis now, and, and some of them are doing very good data analysis. So, so I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is I tried not to get into um, determining who was telling me the truth about facts on the ground and focus more on why are people telling me these stories? So that's your, I'm in, interpreting it. What are, what are the stories that people are telling me and what does it say about their world? And to go back to the planting trees example, so uh, the stories, one of the stories people tell you about planting trees in India is we need to plant trees because it protects water supplies. And India is, is generally quite a water scarce country. So water is highly salient. Um, so that's a story. It's a story that has no basis in fact. There is a relationship between vegetation and water, but it's very complicated. And I now have friends who are hydrologists and eco-hydrologists. And I tell them this and they're like, ah, do you have like three days for me to explain this relationship to you? Um, it's very complicated, but that's a story that people tell. It doesn't have to, I don't have to judge whether or not it's true, but I can say, Indian foresters think it's important to plant trees because of water, of, of water supplies. And I can also tell the story that that's not something that they can ground in any scientific basis because to the extent that it's a very complicated phenomena, it's basically not been studied in the parts of India where I've done field work. Yeah, I mean, first what you're saying reminds me of this dualism that I've talked to some students about where when you're engaging with someone who's talking to you about the world, you're getting two types of data. You're getting data about the world through their subjective lens, but you're also getting data about the person. Yeah. And both those things are happening at once. And it's important not to forget the second one, particularly if the person's being very charismatic and convincing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing is, um, you know, I, I was often able to sort of bring in secondary data. So, you know, going back to the, the issue of joint forest management, once I was actually in India and talking to a lot of local people, I found, for example, that um, at one of the research institutes that I was affiliated with, someone had done a PhD thesis about joint forest management in that state. And they had drawn a random sample of joint forest management committees and gone and interviewed the people who were listed in the government records as being on those joint forest management committees. And most of those people were not aware that they were on those committees. So I didn't need to go out and do a study that said, uh, a lot of this stuff is just on paper and isn't really happening. I could observe that kind of informally that it seems like these foresters, you know, they don't really care about the people, they just care about the tree planting part of it. And gee, this other person drew a random sample and found, he didn't look at the foresters, he looked at the villagers and found, yeah, most of the villagers didn't even know they were on these committees. Maybe they were put on a committee five years ago and they'd forgotten, or maybe it was just a piece of paper. 
Right. So just as we have paper parks, which is nicely alliterative, we have paper committees and sometimes paper communities. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, but it, it was nice that I was able to find, um, again, going back to the journalists, um, you know, there's some really good journalists working in, you know, small cities around India covering forest issues because those are important. And nowadays, you know, I can, I still go on the Times of India website and read uh, the journalists in central India who cover forest issues in central India. And they're great. And they're writing almost every day. There's an article about forest issues and you can really know what's going on all over the world. I, I, a lot of the, my contacts, I, from my field work, I follow them on Facebook and Twitter and I, I can still have a sense of what's going on in those places based on that, so. So Forrest, I think your, your work, you know, how you started, you know, really rich and empirical uh, work that you've done uh, critiquing the plantations, tree plantations in India. I mean, it's just been like really detailed, but I think, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think that probably that work has helped you understand and maybe like, you know, critique plantations, not just at a very specific, you know, country specific and, you know, state specific level, but also like a broader level. So I'm wondering like, you know, um, some of the work that you're doing right now is basically about critiquing these like large, larger scale tree plantation. So I'm, what I'm trying to understand is that whether your work that you did in India was in any way, you know, uh, it, whether it any way helped you engage more deeply with what you're doing currently, uh, where, where, where the, the context is like really, I mean, it's much larger and uh, the, the politics is like, you know, way more complex. Well, I think around, this is maybe, I guess, let's say roughly six years ago. So I had published this paper about tree planting and I wasn't actively working on it anymore. It was kind of something I did. And then, um, and I started getting, I mean, I'll make the story not that long, but I started getting connected to various people who were concerned about related issues, um, in part because I'd written something. Um, and in part, well, so in any case, I, I, I started to realize that there was a group of people going around and promoting uh, large-scale tree planting programs specifically, and the broader idea that they call forest landscape restoration as this transformative, positive thing for the world. Um, and if you read, if you read a lot of the stuff that comes out from the advocates of forest landscape restoration, it's a no-brainer. Like obviously, we should be doing forest landscape restoration. It's a win-win for everybody. It stores carbon, it improves water supplies, it is good for the local people. And I was like, but India's basically been doing this. I mean, India's had huge forest restoration programs for decades. And I don't think they've got that much to show for it. Um, and I, I didn't, I hadn't measured that. In fact, really until this year, I didn't have good measures of any of that. Uh, I knew that it was a huge amount of money and a huge effort, but I didn't know what its impact was. And I still have only a small sense of what it, the impact has been. But I knew that the impacts were much less in general. And 
had many more negatives than was being portrayed in this literature. So I, again, this is going back five or six years ago, I had some conversations with some of these people in, uh, in international organizations and some of the big shot scientists who are promoting these programs. And I just felt like I was talking to someone on a different planet. Um, and, you know, I'd been observing these kinds of programs in India and seeing them sort of as programs that are likely to fail and have lots and lots of downsides in practice. And these people were like, no, this is wonderful. You're gonna, you're, they were mad at me because I was being critical of them and I was gonna stop wonderful things from happening. And um, so I realized that, you know, I, I didn't set out to become a critic of any of these people or any of these programs, but I realized that I have something to say to this because I've observed things that these people obviously haven't observed. And one of the things that I've realized is a lot of this honestly comes down to where people have studied. And a lot of these forest landscape restoration ecologists work in the Atlantic forest of Brazil or in Costa Rica. And Costa Rica is a huge forest restoration success story. And I know that I've been there. I, I know nothing about the Atlantic forest of Brazil, so I won't make a comment there, but it sounds like it might also be a big success story. Um, and that's not the world. And I don't claim that what I've observed in India is the world either, but what I observed in India didn't look that good. And I need to go out and document that. So, so I've spent now several years and um, was fortunate to get a, a big NASA grant that enabled me to document forest planting, tree planting in, in one district in India. And uh, we have several papers under review, but I would say um, the bottom line of those papers is they've spent a ton of money in this one place in India planting trees. And as far as we can tell, there've been no impacts we, as in, we cannot detect changes in forest cover from before the trees were planted to several years after the trees plant were planted. There is no change in, in forest cover that's attributable to that event. Um, and we've also documented that a huge percentage of the tree planting that's going on is in places where the tree planting is not very likely to contribute to achieving any kind of commercial or ecological goal. And it's largely being driven, we think, by the government set a target for how many trees need to be planted this year. And, and this is, this, these are programs that are being billed as forest restoration. That's what they're saying they're doing. So there's a lot that's lost in, from these idealistic ecologists working in Costa Rica, which is a very idyllic little country, saying, look, we can restore forests and it'll be wonderful to what happens when that's actually implemented on the ground in other parts of the world. And um, so, so that's made, made me into a critic and I've been trying to be a little bit noisy about it uh, because I'm, I'm concerned that people are gonna spend a lot of money and resources on something that's really maybe in the best case scenario. And I think the place we're studying is kind of a best case scenario. Um, won't have an impact, 
And in the worst case scenario, and we, we haven't documented this in our study area, but there's very good documentation of this elsewhere in India, you know, we need to put in this tree plantation and there's these indigenous people living here who don't have land rights, so they're illegal and we need to kick them off so we can restore this forest. And we end up with human rights abuses and you know, displacement of indigenous and other rural people in the name of this wonderful thing called forest landscape restoration. And the thing that's driving me crazy right now is when you confront the advocates of forest landscape restoration with these problems, they say, oh, but if you're chasing indigenous people out, that's not forest landscape restoration. So they define their category that anything bad happens isn't what they're doing. Um, but this advocacy of this is playing into these funding programs that in some situations are gonna to lead to very negative outcomes and in many situations to sort of uh, just wasting money. And uh, I think sort of the next step I see moving forward from these fairly small scale studies in India is trying to get a broader handle on, well, is, is, my, is my study in India an exception? Is it the norm? Uh, you know, where are the places where this can work out well? Can we understand where it will work out well and where it won't? Um, and so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about how to scale up. Uh, we've spent almost a million dollars um, on, I believe, three different grants now studying these plantations in one district in India. And obviously scaling up to a million dollars for whatever 600 districts in India and then the rest of the world is not possible. So we need to be thinking about other ways of thinking about this problem at a larger scale. So Forrest, it sounds like there's a lot of familiar ingredients here, right? Um, the narrative that you describe reflects a lot of the cases that like James Scott describes and seeing like a state, we have metric driven panacea thinking type governance. And it also reminds me of a term I heard, I've been doing more research on community driven conservation mm -hmm. as its own panacea that's been critiqued, mm -hmm. which is complicated, right? Because part of the motivation for that was to fight some of the dynamics that you're describing where local folks are getting crowded out, et cetera. So you have this, I, I do think there's a, a pattern where you have one panacea is replaced by another one that suffers from some of the same challenges of implementation, ad hoc theorizing, where you kind of save the panacea concept the way you're describing, right? So if something bad happens, well, it must be because it wasn't polycentric enough or whatever, pick your term. And uh, what you, the dynamic you mentioned also reminded me of Forrest of a term I heard in this literature on community-driven conservation of like a culture of praise mm -hmm. where everyone is kind of telling each other how great they're doing and how great things are. And there's a discomfort with um, conflict that departs from the narrative that drives a lot of, um, I wanna, it, 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 it reminds me of, the discourse about in-group, out-group dynamics, right? If you want to be in the group, you need to be on board with 
the project and the panacea thinking that you're all promoting. And so you were kind of, and I'm, I'm projecting a narrative onto what you're saying now. It felt like you were kind of outing yourself as someone who's not in the forest conservation in-group, which, you know, I think it's difficult. Like who isn't for community-driven conservation? Who isn't for forest conservation and all of these lovely sounding nouns? And the challenge is when, uh, you know, predictably the reality departs from the grand ideas that we come up with in a hotel suite. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's, uh, there's a lot of those kind of dynamics going on in the world that I'm looking at. And I, I, think, I think we need to start from a presumption that solving big problems is really hard. And um, one of the things I think that happens is, you know, people come up with their, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so people come up with their solutions and they're good solutions. Forest landscape restoration is a good idea somewhere. somewhere there's somewhere where it can be done really well and be really beneficial. On the other hand, you know, you read the stuff written by the ecologists promoting it and coming from my intellectual background, having you know, studied international development and having studied policy implementation in the United States. I'm like, these people are incredibly naive. If, if they think that this is always gonna work out in this idyllic way that it worked out in their scientifically run pilot project in Costa Rica, a country that is just highly unusual in a whole bunch of ways. Um, you know, and then you can pick that up and take it to the whole world and expect it to work the same. We know that that, that never works. Um, so I think the thing that's been encouraging to me is that um, although I initially kind of felt like a critic from the outside, I quickly was connected to large groups of others who have the same critiques. So for example, um, there was this paper published almost two years ago uh, in science that said that we should plant a trillion trees, got a huge amount of press. Um, and I was part of one of the several responses to that paper. Um, they, they totally screwed up the calculations. I mean, it, it's a really flawed paper, but I was a part of one of the responses and the response that I was a part of has something like 50 co-authors and co-authors from every continent, um, and, and, you know, very high profile ecologists, uh, again, members of the National Academy and people who've won lots of awards and things like that. Um, people who have tons of sort of on the ground experience in different parts of the world. The, 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 the most pissed off people about this are, the, are not social scientists. They're grassland ecologists in Africa because all these tree planting maps, um, and you know, global rest, forest restoration maps identify all the African savannas, you know, the places where there's zebras and giraffes and lions. They think those are all forest restoration opportunities because they don't have a lot of trees. And you know, these are millions of years old savanna systems that because of fire and grazing have lower tree cover 
than you might predict based on precipitation and temperature. And so the, these global maps come in there and they're like, oh, look, all of Africa has the right climate for growing trees, but that's not what Africa is. And so these African ecologists, you know, ecologists based in African countries are just really up in arms about this stuff. So I was like, okay, I'm not the only one who's concerned about, I had a different concern than they did. I mean, we can talk, um, we understand each other. They're also concerned about the people who live in these savannas, but they're, they're concerned about zebras mm. or, so, so it's been, it's been really cool to get um, connected to people who are thinking critically about these issues and find that I'm, I'm kind of trying to build a network of people who are thinking critically about these issues and not to say forest landscape restoration is a bad idea. I certainly don't think it's a bad idea, but let's figure out how we can do this well. Um, and not just, not just have this in-group group think, which I think is going on in some of the international organizations and some of the networks of, of ecologists that you know anything that we call forest landscape restoration is good. And if it's not good, it must not be forest landscape restoration. And so Forrest, how much does this work and does your involvement in this tie into climate change policy specifically? Because I know there's this thing called uh, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So BECCS, maybe they call it BEX, I don't know. So I've read about that a little bit and my understanding is that it's, it's predicated on exactly these types of strategies of planting massive amounts of trees. Right. Um, and I, was the science article that you mentioned, was it saying that we need to plant a trillion trees essentially to combat climate change? Yeah, uh, exactly. So, so, so that paper, um, they actually had to issue a correction. Um, and one of the things in the correction was they initially said something like, uh, planting trees is the single best strategy to stop climate change. And we did make them back off of that. And, and now the, the lead authors of that, I've seen them, you know, there's talks of, that they've given on YouTube and stuff like that. And they say things like, well, clearly we have to stop emissions um, right. And, you know, but this is also important and I agree with them. You know, I, I think that, that land and forests are an important part of the, um, of the solution to climate change. They are a relatively small part, but they're not insignificant. A quarter of, a quarter of, of historical emissions, uh, are, are, are from the land system, mostly from deforestation and, and other kinds of modifications to land. So that probably means we should be thinking about a quarter of the solution coming from land systems. Um, I think one of the problems, and this is a, a, a long-term problem, um, you know, the, the Stern review was a high profile climate economics review. It came out sometime like 2005. And uh, Stern identified forests as a low cost form of climate mitigation because it's cheaper to plant trees than it is to do other kinds of emissions abatements. But he ignored all of these costs that we've been talking about, all the complexities of actually getting people to plant trees, of actually getting people to, to grow those trees. And we know 
um, you know, it, we were dis discussing before the interview started, it's hot in India right now, it's dry. You know, if, if there's a, a, if someone planted some trees next to a village and the people in that village don't want those trees to grow, all they need to do right now is walk into that, the edge of that plantation and drop a cigarette into the dry grass. It was an accident. There was a forest fire. Boom, all those trees are dead. It's really easy to, to kill those baby trees. And, and that happens all the time in places where there's conflict over plantations. So unless you can deal with these very local scale decision-making processes, you can't access this supposedly low cost way of abating carbon. And so I think what you end up with um, is maybe something that's very hard to measure in an economic model, but maybe forests aren't really low cost. They just have different kinds of costs than say, you know, reducing tailpipe emissions by converting my gas powered minivan into a, a Tesla. Um, it, it, it's, it's a different kind of cost, um, but it's still a cost. And in some sense, it's a harder cost because it's not really about money. It's, it's about getting people to work together to solve problems. And you better hope that those people want your solution. And they might not. You know, it might be in a lot of cases, you know, if you look at the any reasonable cost of carbon, and you say, we're gonna pay people to not cut down their forests. At any reasonable cost of carbon, most people who own a forest can make more money growing corn in that forest than they can by keeping it in a forest. That's not gonna be true everywhere. And, and some people are gonna have other kinds of opportunity costs, but you know, people have to have some motivation to, to conserve forests and the finances often don't look that good for forests. So, so I, I, I think it's a, it's a complicated problem. I, I definitely think that, that, that forests are a big piece of the carbon solution, but some of these systems, and such as the one you mentioned, where we're gonna plant a bunch of trees for biomass, and then we can capture that biomass, it's not really that simple to do that in most of the world. And I think a lot of the, you know, if you buy, 500 acres in Georgia and plant pine trees, you can do that. But in a, in a lot of the world, it's hard to, to making those steps is hard. So talking about, you know, forests working together and just like reflecting on your approach that, you know, how you, you shared that working with people with the similar kind of like an approach and mindset that, you know, uh, you, you formed a group of people who felt the same way about large scale tree plantations. And it was really interesting to work with them and, and write this like, you know, uh, response piece to turn it all. So I was thinking that, you know, it's, it's always nice to work with like-minded people. It's, it's really productive. And, you know, who doesn't want to work with people whom you like? But then I'm, I'm wondering like, you know, uh, when, when you are tackling issues that are as controversial as large scale plantations, do you think there is a way to, to maybe sort of like think about how it would be to work with people who have completely opposite ideologies and completely opposite mindsets? I mean, to me, ideally it seems like, you know, it would probably like add more credibility to the work, but then I, I, don't, I don't know how one would make such collaborations, you know, happen. 
So I was wondering, like, you know, what your thoughts are on forming collaboration with people who do not think like you and have completely opposite ideologies and mindsets. Well, I think in terms of scientific collaboration, um, I think one thing that most scientists share is an interest in empirical evidence. And so I think a lot of these debates that get played out, kind of high profile people writing letters and such, it seems like we have really divergent ideas. But I think we can work together if we say, well, let's study something. Let's collect data about it. Here's the data I wanna have. Here's the data you need. And then we can answer questions. Um, and so, although I've written, uh, I guess, a, I, a couple opinion pieces um, at this point, I, I, a lot of what I want to do is, well, let's get more data about this. And I'll collaborate with anyone, including someone who I disagree with, about what the past data shows. If we can agree on, here's the research question. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, I mentioned that, that I had some conversations with some of these high profile people advocating forest landscape restoration five or six years ago. And it was very discouraging um, because uh, a colleague and I basically said, look, we've got some problems with what you are doing, um, but we think it's an empirical question. Will you work with us? You know, we disagree with you, but it, we're, we're posing an empirical problem. Let's, let's work together to get some data to answer it. And they didn't want to. And I found that very discouraging because this included some pretty high profile scientists as well as some NGO people. And I understand an NGO people, you know, maybe, maybe research isn't their thing. Their thing is doing stuff. And that's fine with me. We need people to do stuff. But I was disappointed in the researchers basically saying, oh, we don't want to engage with this because this could mess up our friends in the NGOs. Um, so I've, I've basically been looking ever since for collaborators who aren't necessarily going to agree with me, but who are going to bring different research tools to the table. So, you know, I'm a social scientist. I'm really a qualitative researcher. We were talking about my doctoral work. Um, but, you know, I need someone who can do remote sensing. I need someone who can do you know, big quantitative econometric work. I need people who can understand the ecology of these systems. I need people who understand local cultures and contexts. And then we can work together and we can answer empirical problems. So that's the way I've, I've, I've tried to think about it is really this is a question of let's gather, let, let's figure, let's agree on data we need to collect. And, and I think for the NGO people, that's not what they want to do. And, and that's fine. And I mean, I may never be very successful at collaborating with those people just because that's not what my skill set isn't in doing things, it's in studying things. Um, but uh, I, I think that we can accomplish a lot on these controversies if we can actually put together systematic studies that answer questions instead of arguing. And so that's what I'm, I'm trying to do and um, trying to bring diverse voices into that conversation. But, you know, the senior scientist who kind of shot me down several years ago when I suggested, let's do an empirical study of this. And, you know, I, I haven't invited that person 
to, to collaborate with me because that person didn't seem interested. But if that person wrote to me and said, uh, hey, now you're doing some interesting work, I'd be interested in collaborating with you, yeah. Um, I think there were also some power dynamics between you know, new assistant professor and, and sort of distinguished professor where they just probably didn't take me that seriously and that's okay too. So Forrest, as a final question, you've started to answer this and to some extent already, what are the next steps that you really wanna take? Um, and it can be you know, specific to this conversation, but also in your career more generally, what are some new projects, next steps that are exciting you and that you think um, represent some challenges that you'd like to continue to, to confront? I would say there's two things that I'm thinking a lot about right now. Um, the first is, will at first not seem very directly related to this, which is I've been incredibly fortunate to get some money to study here in Minnesota um, to study policy advocacy and sort of how people are advocating for environmental policies for and against them and how, why they make the choices they do when they advocate for different policies. Um, and right now, most of the funding I have, uh, University of Minnesota just got a very large new grant. We have a new long-term ecological research site, which is the Twin Cities. So you're probably familiar with the, the Phoenix, Arizona long-term ecological research study. So we're now going to be building a Minneapolis, St. Paul analog to that one. Okay, very cool. And I have a tiny piece of it, but it's such a large grant that a tiny piece of it is, is actually like um, basically a graduate student. Um, so I'll be working with a graduate student for the next several years to study policy advocacy around urban environmental issues here in the Twin Cities. Um, and I'll say my motivation, I've always wanted to do some research where I lived and not be jetting off to other parts of the world all the time. And I have a family and, and you know, flying everywhere is bad for the climate and, and tiring. Um, and I don't like being apart from my family. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time thinking, well, what, what do I care about studying here? And I think a lot of, uh, I hope this doesn't come out wrong, but uh, a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of environmental issues in Minnesota that people care about, but have a relatively small impact. So, um, you know, really hot topic right now in Minnesota is um, they want to build a copper nickel mine on the upstream from the Boundary Waters Wilderness Area, which is this really iconic, beautiful landscape that's protected area in northern Minnesota. And people who love that landscape are really up in arms because copper nickel mines pollute water. And so the water is going to go downstream into this beautiful landscape of lakes and rivers and pollute it. And it's a really big deal. But there's a part of me having worked all over the world that says, well, it's just one small place that will be polluted. And some of these questions I've been asking are bigger. You know, we're talking about climate change. We're talking about things that are gonna pollute the whole planet. Um, so how can I do work here that connects to that? Well, one of the things I thought about is that, you know, in the first world, we are 
the main polluters, climate change. So understanding how we can make changes in the first world that will reduce our climate footprint. And there's a lot of work on sort of what policies would work, but I don't see a lot of work being done on, well, how can we advocate effectively for these policies? So that's my research question. That's one thing I'll be spending a lot of time on. The second thing, which connects back to what we've been talking about, and I haven't quite figured out how to do, so that's why I'm putting it second, is I think thinking about forests, forest restoration and forest conservation as part of a, a piece of climate change and understanding that a lot of the th policy solutions that are being advocated for have not worked out well. So I gave the example of forest landscape restoration as an example of something that we've studied in one context and gee, it doesn't seem to really be having the impact that was advertised. So let's try to figure out the sort of configurable conditions where forest landscape restoration or forest conservation, where is this gonna work well? Where should we be investing? What kind of policies? There's a huge amount of focus right now on market-based policy instruments for forest conservation. But we've got decades of experience with forest conservation that shows that there's other kinds of policies that work well. So let's be thinking about, you know, is it payments for ecosystem services that we need? Or is it promoting the development of sustainable timber markets? Or is it reducing subsidies for export-driven agriculture? I don't know which one of those tools is better and no one else does either. And so thinking about those questions, drawing on my experience in India and I intend to keep studying them in India, but also thinking about at a broader global picture, our, our, our policy dialogue is very impoverished around these issues. And we're focusing on these particular fads around payments for ecosystem services or, or ecosystem restoration and not thinking about well, what are, the, what are the conditions that we think are likely to work in particular places to solve this problem? And so I think you know, that, that's a huge agenda and I'm trying at this point, thinking about how to build a network of people who are interested not in promoting their favorite solution, but in studying where different solutions work well. Um, mm. So it's interesting, I'll, I'll make one last observation that you can respond to or not. I mean, it, you mentioned this boundary water issue and okay, it's very place-based and, and the response I heard from you was, well, I, also, I wanna do something that attaches to a larger scale. Mm -hmm. But then towards the end of your answer, you got back to wanting your work to be place-based. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there's a tension there and, and, and to some, to some extent, I just don't like mines and I don't want to go near them. Um, I like trees. <laughs> okay. I, you know, we, we all have subjective things. Um, uh, but I, I think that um, for me, the challenge is understanding how the place-based scales. And I think what people often mean by that is like, well, we did this pilot project here and how can we make it work all over the world? But for me, the question is kind of the opposite. It's like, how can we design policies at a global level 
which accommodate the diversity of kinds of solutions that are going to work in different kinds of places. And, um, you know, frankly, what I, what I see a lot of in the global policy arena is a lot of blueprint thinking. And, you know, how can we take this blueprint and apply it everywhere versus how can we support um, the kinds of solutions that will work in different contexts? Thanks for listening, everyone. The In Common podcast is now partnered with the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC, as their official podcast. We are continuing to produce episodes for each of the virtual conferences the IASC is hosting this year. We are also working with the International Journal of the Commons, or as I like to now call it, the Commons Journal. Specifically, we are working with the editors of the IJC to interview authors of IJC articles. So look out for those episodes as well. Have a nice day, everyone. Get outside if you can. <laughs>